0: We are hitting into a spot in the book of James where we're in a final chapter, a final chapter of James. I believe there's going to be one, two, three, four, or five more sermons in the book of James, depending on how we finish it out. Uh, But chapter 5 is going to be interesting for us as we dive in, and there's going to be a couple of reasons for that. One of the reasons is because we're talking about this rich and poor contrast that James even talks about in chapter 1, where he talks about um, the brother in humble circumstances should boast in his exaltation, but the rich should boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like the flower of the field. Uh, In chapter 2 about favoritism, there's rich and there's Poor. Now in chapter 5, we're going to see rich, and then next week, I always say tomorrow, but next week, we're going to talk about the response of the lowly brother to the rich. Now, even last week in the end of chapter 4, there's a discussion about rich merchants. So, a theme throughout the letter that James writes to these believers is rich and poor and suffering and struggling and not feeling like you have enough, perhaps, or the rich taking advantage of the poor, which is, I think, what we have going on here in chapter 5. So, read along with me as we go through James chapter 5, starting in verse 1, we'll go all the way through verse 6. Come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten, your gold and silver are corroded, And the corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Can you say that like fire? You have stored up treasure in the last days. Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your field cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous who does not resist you. Pray with me. God, as we hear these warnings today, we need to hear rightly from you. And I pray, we pray, that we would remember your words and the work of your Son for us as we go into this passage. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there's a lot of talk today over phone apps. You might have apps on your own phone. You might have things that you deal with. Uh, but phone apps are quite an interesting conversation because we want to know what's safe and what's not. Now, we usually do this in conversation with our kids, which apps should our kids use or which apps are our kids not use. But I'm going to let you know one of the apps that I personally need some help with. You might be familiar, you might call the H-A-R app or the HAR app, I like to say HAR app, the Houston Association of Realtors app. And the website, HAR.com. Dangerous territory for me. Why? Well, I love it a little too much. I love taking tours through people's houses. I love seeing all the cool stuff and thinking, well what if I lived here? How would I use this space? Oh, man, if I had a house that big, think of all the ministry that I could do. Think of all the people that I could have over. Think of all the people who could live with me. That would just be awesome if I had that. And then you go, how much would I have to make to be able to afford that? Okay. What would the taxes be? Oh, man, the taxes are like half of my salary. Never mind. What are the utilities? How much does it cost to air condition a gigantic house? A lot. A lot. But yet, there I was. I mean, you know, you go to like HoustonChronicle.com, cron.com, what are they gonna do? Like, oh man, gigantic house. I think I saw one even yesterday. Like house with an Aggie boot as a for a pool, an hour outside of Houston. And you're just like, okay, we could live there. Let's just do that. And so we have all these dreams of like, man, if I were a professional athlete, if I were a a wealthy musician, if I had made good real estate decisions, man, I could live in that house. I could have that thing. It's just inherent within me, probably inherent within many of us, the desire to be rich. Now, what's funny is just comparatively, most people in America, but most people are part of our church in the very least, Are in the top one or two percent of global wage earners, you know, top one or two percent, no doubt. Like we are, we are right up there. Just about anybody else in the world would call us rich, and yet we compare ourselves to the one or two percent and go, "Well, I'm not that. I don't have that. I don't have a jet. Uh, I don't. You know, if I had a jet, then I'd feel rich. Or if I could charter my own flights, then I'd feel rich. Or if I had two houses, then I'd feel rich. But just kind of, you know, me with my modest." Uh, Upper middle class income with my 2,000 square foot house, my extra bathrooms, my extra bedroom for guests. Like I don't really feel like that's that's not normal. I mean, you know, that's that's pretty. Everybody has that. You want to have like twice that size, then you're good. We have this this inclination for our houses to be bigger, our lives to have cool activities as a part of them, things that we think would be more fun. Things that our kids would think would be more fun. We just go, oh, if only, if only I made that much, I would handle it better. Or we get super biblical about it, we go, I would steward it better. I could be a better steward of these things than all these other folks. But that's not really how it works. We have this, this kind of lust of things, this desire for things. But we often forget what the Lord says about riches and what they do to our heart, how they can really corrupt how we think and how we act and how we live and how we struggle and how we talk and what we believe and how we work and the energy that we put into keeping up with all of our stuff to pay the bills, to go on the vacations, to keep the lifestyle going. It's like we just it's like, like our, our Jesus brain just turns off. And we go, well, I'm just, you know, look but don't touch, right? Just kind of live like that, but don't necessarily pursue it. That's fine. What kind of ridiculous advice do we convince ourselves with when we do just that? So we're in a unique part of James because end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5, he's talking to wealthy people. Many of us would fit that bill. Most of us would fit that bill of wealthy people In the book of James. Last week he gave a conversation or had a conversation with those rich merchants who would travel and they would they would say well we're gonna go live and do this and conduct business and make money and he really got mad and frustrated with them because of their lack of concern for God. And he gave them a response didn't he? Instead of just having this arrogant planning, instead of that You should say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As you've heard our uh, updates on our website and our emails to you, we've started to kind of tag that in, like, we'll see you Sunday if the Lord wills, because we really don't know how this goes, right? Like, the one course we didn't get in seminary was pandemic management, Uh, and so we just kind of go, well, we'll see, you know, how it goes, so, in chapter four, at the end, he talks to the rich, but he gives kind of a, a, a response to their behavior. Instead of living like this, you should live like that. However, if you look at chapters five, chapter five, verses one through six, his tone changes. There is only condemnation, there is no real hope of restoration. There's no, like in the beginning of chapter four, when he gave this response of repentance. As we looked at 4, 1 through 6, and 7 through 10, there's none of that. Instead, we just have this strong, almost prophetic-like voice toward the rich and what is coming upon them. And the language is really apocalyptic, right? It's like, like when the Lord returns, you will be judged for this behavior. And I think what's going on is in chapter 4, he's talking to the rich, but he's talking to rich believers, Chapter 5, he's talking to the rich, but I think he's talking to rich unbelievers. Now, it'd be interesting. Why would James take six verses, what we would call six verses, but a paragraph of his letter and address a unique situation that has to do with unbelievers and how they handle wealth and, and challenge them to remind them or show them what is coming? Well, I think part of the reason is to both teach the congregation... The consequences of pursuing wealth. But then as you get to what we'll read next week, he also is going to use that as a way to remind them to persevere amidst the way that they're being treated, amidst the way that they're being taken advantage of. He reminds them to have patience through their suffering. And so I think the condemnation is real. He's talking about their the behavior of the rich. And how their behavior is going to lead to their destruction. But then he follows up immediately with, Be patient, therefore, brothers. And he starts talking to the church again. So next week is going to give some comfort to the congregation. But as we go through this week, he's going to expose how disastrous and harmful the pursuit of worldly wealth is. Jesus talks a lot about wealth, doesn't he? We don't have to go far to realize that Jesus is one who communicates with us about how wealth shouldn't be pursued. But then he has uh, parables where he's like, hey, make friends with worldly wealth. Meaning, use your money to, to have relationships with people and do things for the kingdom. To build relationships and to bring about influence if you are able. But in this passage, James is talking much more in a condemning tone about the negative aspects of pursuing worldly wealth. So for a church, for the believers this morning, well, how do we then take a passage condemning rich people? Well, it's never us, right? But like, how do we take that passage that's condemning in nature and go, well, what do I do with this? Well, I think part of it's going to be in our recognition that we need to reject and repent of that attitude of, I wish I had that. Life would be much better if I had these things. If I had this much money. I'm sure you've had these conversations with your spouse or your friends. It's like, how much money would it take to change your life? And You go, well, how much do I owe my mortgage? Like that much. I like, guess that's always where we go. Like it would take my mortgage. If I could just get that paid off, my life would be totally transformed. Mm, would it? I know you. You know me. You'd still have the same problems with or without a mortgage. They're not often tied to your mortgage. But yet so often we get kind of duped into believing that pursuing wealth and accumulating wealth is going to be what solves our problems. So even as we hear the warnings that go in one direction that result in condemnation, we can hear that and go, there's a lot of danger if I try to change my approach to money. And what it can do to my heart. So that's where we're gonna focus on a lot. And there's largely kind of two movements this morning. Uh, there's just verse one, and then there's verses two, three, four, five, and six. So verse one, verses two through six, like James does, and he kind of makes a comment, and then he illustrates. And this is what we're gonna see in verse one that loving worldly wealth ends in disaster. Ends in disaster. You might really be enjoying life right now but it is not going to end in the place that you want. That's verse 5, the warning to the rich. He's spoken about the rich merchants, chapter 4, verse 13, come now uh, you who say, now he's saying, come now you rich people, verse 1. Weep and wail, ideas of, of, of weeping, gnashing of teeth, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. So in this first verse, James is addressing the rich and the misery that comes along with it. The miseries are coming on you. They haven't arrived yet, but they will soon. There's this idea that's in the prophets, that's in the New Testament, specifically as we read about and learn about the coming of the Lord Jesus, to return and take what is his, the resurrection of the dead, the hope of life that is to come, some to life and some to death. There's this constant idea in the history of God's redemption of the day of the Lord. Maybe you heard this idea, the day of the Lord. If not, you could even do a quick Google search and just go, day of the Lord is what? And you'll see it as a time of God's visitation, the day of the Lord, which results in, or brings along with it, God's judgment. Now the day of the Lord is not always his final return. You could consider the exile, a day of the Lord, a visitation, and a moving of the nation out of the land, which was judgment. So James has this idea of, future day of the Lord when you will be judged for what is going on. Just one example you could find in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6. Wail, wail, interesting word, for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty it will come. The day of the Lord. James has in mind, I think, the day of the Lord. He has this Strong Jewish background. Remember, James was Jewish. James is Jewish, but he follows the Messiah. And he has this view of this future day of judgment. But it's not just James, right? Like Kind of like reading Rainbow. You don't just have to dig my word for it. You can listen to Jesus teach about wealth and possessions and a future time of judgment. One example would be in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, that would be Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me judge an arbitrator over you? He said, Well, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man, rich man, there he is again, produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. Anybody who has moved from house to house has felt this. How did we get so much stuff? You go, I don't even know how. We needed one moving van to get here. We need two moving vans to get out of here. I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool! This night your soul is required of you, the visitation and the judgment that comes. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So the idea that James is echoing, is the idea that you see in the prophets that God will judge, it's the idea that his half-brother Jesus has said, which is your riches get you nowhere. In fact, if you make your riches your pursuit It will end in destruction and all that work that you did and all that money you got and however big your bank account was and however many storage units you have all throughout the land and however many houses you have or vacation homes or rentals or timeshares, all that stuff that you have, whose will it be? Your family's just gonna complain and divide and get frustrated over it. Jesus said it. James is saying it, that pursuing wealth doesn't end well. To make that your aim doesn't end well. It results in misery. And why do we know this? How do we see this? Well, it's not just the future where it gets exposed, but even the, presence, the present time shows what that pursuit of wealth can do to people. So, we know that loving worldly wealth ends in disaster, but as we look in the final verses, we're going to see that loving worldly wealth actually exposes hearts. And you're going to see this in the specific ways the wealthy that James is addressing deal with or have to handle their wealth. There's stuff that exposes their hearts. He has some tone that's kind of, again, future. In its approach, and he has some that are like, Look what you're doing, even right now, that is showing your heart. So, there are statements that James makes. The first of those statements is really in two and three about how the results of all these things is it corrodes. Five, two, your wealth has rotted, your clothes are moth eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. Again, that fiery imagery of judgment. You have stored up treasure in the last days. So again, in 2 and 3, there's this reality that hasn't happened yet. Because I'm sure that they are not sitting around going, man, my gold and silver are corroded, and my clothes are moth-eaten, and everything's terrible, and I hate my life. Like, they're probably not viewing that. But he's pointing to what's going to happen. Ultimately, an ungodly pursuit of wealth shows our faulty perspective on life. It defines life by what we have. It defines life by the clothes that we wear, the vehicles that we drive, the car that we have, the places that we vacation, that life gets defined by our stuff, not by the Lord. So James is talking to them about what will be. You ever had something that's just been in storage for a little while and you get it out and you're like, are there moths in here? You know, like everything's just kind of frayed. You go, I don't remember it being this ugly. I don't remember it looking like this. I don't remember it be, I, this is terrible. Or you just, you know, you're doing laundry and you splash a little bleach on your clothes. Or you wash your whites and then you throw in a load after that. And you just go, I didn't rinse it enough. And all of a sudden, tie-dye comes out. The stuff that you love and that you value and that you hold on to disappears. Remember what Jesus says? But God said, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? It says again, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The perspective here is just wrong. Out and out wrong. And as opposed, in opposition to verses 13 through 17 in chapter 4 there's no ultimate clarifying response remember last week James goes instead you should talk like this all James is doing here is throwing condemnation and what's going to come and how it's going to look and what they will experience and what life will be like their corrosion will eat your flesh like fire that's not hopeful that's not redemptive that's a problem my pursuit of searching through houses and what could be and what life would look like and oh man, if only, right? I wonder what the other side lives like. All those kinds of things that we try to do can trick us and expose in us where we think contentment really is. And James is trying to wake up these rich to go this is not where you need to give your attention. Instead of focusing on God's work They focus on their work. But we can't forget why that is, because we go, oh, it's foolish. It's just going to end. It's just going to rot. You're just going to whatever. But that doesn't matter, because we deceive ourselves time and time again, where we think that life is in money, and it's in possessions, and it's in stuff. So verses 2 and 3 show us that this perspective can be wrong, but as we actually continue... We get to see some of how this wealth is often accumulated if your pursuit is worldly wealth and worldly wealth alone. Verse 4: Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your field cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. What do we see here? We see landowners. The end of chapter 4, they were merchants, they would travel and do business. The beginning of chapter five, they're landowners and they don't pay people. Have you ever been on the non receiving end of a paycheck? Somebody says, I'll get that to you. I'll get that to you. The money's coming, checks in the mail. Right? We know the feeling. Somebody says, I'll do that. If you're a gig worker, right, and you just go, somebody's going to go, Yeah, 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 we have that, we're good. And it sounds really stingy sometimes because people be like, listen, I'm not going to start until it's paid in full or I get 75% now because I've been burned too many times. And that's exactly what the rich are doing in verse 4. Oh, yeah, 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 you can mow. And you notice that these harvesters, these land workers, likely needed money. So they're going to be quick to be employed. And the rich know that, and they use it to their wicked advantage. Why pay them if I can just withhold it? James has a great concern for justice. He wants people to live in keeping with who God is. Consider Deuteronomy chapter 24. and I can't prove that this was in James' mind, but James was a sharp guy. And the idea, the heart of it, certainly was. Deuteronomy 24. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land or within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it. Lest he cry out against you, To the Lord, and you be guilty of sin. You hear what James is saying? The workers that you paid, who mowed your fields, they've cried out to the Lord. It's reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. There's a danger in thinking that we can get away with such behavior. Right, trying to live kind of a religious Ponzi scheme of moving money around, and I'll get that to you, or I'll go ahead and do that, or whatever else, or uh, churches that don't pay their debts or pay to people what is owed to try and go. Well, we can we can use that as leverage. No, it's not in keeping with what the Lord does. Think about the grace of God. What do we say? I mean, what do we say around here at Genesis, right? Salvation is by grace through faith. This is not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which he has prepared in advance for us to walk in. Like, that's our God. And when we go, Lord, forgive me, he doesn't go, well, hold on. I wasn't really happy with the way you asked. I really wish you would have said it differently. No, you pay. You pay what is owed. And they weren't. Unfortunately, for many who live their lives with a worldly pursuit of wealth, this becomes an approach. Why would I pay if they're going to do the job and I can withhold it for a little while? And it's wicked, and it's selfish. And James is trying to show them. The Lord hears the cries of those who have been taken advantage of. He hears it. And then we see the way they lived their lives in verses 5 and 6. you lived luxuriously on the earth. You've indulged yourselves. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and you've murdered the righteous who does not resist you. What's going on with the perspective here? That their lives don't reflect the proper understanding of what God wants and rather than focus on the Lord's approach to life they have said let's go ahead and eat and drink and be merry and live the life that we want. We'll take advantage of the people we want to take advantage of. Why? Because we know that that we have more resources. We know that we can get away with it. We know that we can lawyer up and win the argument. We know that we can go ahead and get this done better and faster than those who don't have means. In fact, James talks about this just a couple of chapters ago, chapter 2. He goes, aren't the rich the ones who are dragging you into court? Aren't they the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? And he's showing this contrast. Look what they're able to do. Look at how they're able to harm. Now, what can happen here if we're not careful is we go, yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, and we go, I hate the rich. The goal for all of us, for those who've been saved by Jesus, is the restoration and redemption. When I see people who have a healthy view of stuff, who are generous, kind, who give of what they have, often in droves, I don't pray God takes that away. I pray God gives it more. I want that perspective to be multiplied. I want more people to be served, but that perspective is often so limited, meaning the people who feel that way are limited because we get stuff, and what do I always think about? Oh, what can I do with this? Not, whom could I bless with this? How would God have me use this? Right? We already have our next two, three, four, five, and six raises planned out. When we get this one, we're going to do that. When we get this one, we're going to do that. When we get this one, we're going to do that. Like, we, don't, we don't think about it necessarily as the increasing of our generosity. but The increasing of our lifestyle. And that's the danger. Because wealth is an insulator It makes you feel as if you are protected from what's out there. My house is safer, my neighborhood's gated, my kids are here, I have insurance for days. Any problem can be covered. And if, right, you can add people for that. If someone wants to come at me, I come at them harder. And I don't even have to lift a finger. I know what to do, and I know how to do it. And so what happens, right? You start to feel invincible. No one can get at me. But listen to what James says. Who can get at you? The Lord. He wins. His day, the day of the Lord, comes to be. The return of Jesus happens. And very often, I would believe, or I would see, because you see the Lord's heart as expressed in the Son, very often, isn't it the poor or those without means? What does James say? Are rich in faith? And so we get our perspectives upside down. But the world that we live in, idolizes and worships the rich. People with means, people with power. And so it's easy for the believer to get caught up in it, to think this is really how life gets done. Well, we're going to get to next week what James is trying to help the believers, many of whom are poor here, to remember, be patient, what God promised will come about. And He's promised destruction for those who are rebellious and disobedient for the whole of their lives. And He's promised life to those who pursue Him, who have faith in what Jesus the Son has done. So with all these statements in mind, Let us remember this, that worldly wealth, worldly riches deceive, they distort, and they end in disaster. Though we might think it is the way to get what we want, how we want it, when we want it, it's not. But there is always hope. I'm going to talk to two groups of people. First, for the unbeliever. If you do not know the Lord. If you go, I have pursued life for myself. I do live insulated. I live for myself. I do what I want. I've taken advantage of people. I have been the rich person in James 5. If that is you, please know there is no judgment for those who come to the Lord Jesus in faith. None. That, that if our pursuit has been on this world and worldly wealth and our pursuits and our money and our time and our energies, if that's really been the pursuit of life, you can go to Jesus who for your sake, though rich, became poor. You can turn to him and be forgiven for your sinfulness and receive his grace. Remember chapter 4 verse 10, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. That stands. The judgment is sure, but for those who trust in Jesus, we recognize that he took the ultimate judgment for us. And then secondly, a passage like this for the believer, I would just say this, don't love things, don't love things. You feel an enormous amount of pressure as a parent, or as a friend, or as a husband, or just somebody. You go, I, 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 I need to get stuff. right. I'm a provider. I need to have more things. Things are cool. Things deceive, and things rot. And these are the weird things that I think about. Like when I'm at home and fireworks are going off in my neighborhood for like four hours straight, I don't feel like they ever really stopped. And they land in your yard. Like kids are like, "There's a rocket in our backyard." It had popped, but like, what? You know, I just go, "What if one of these fireworks just lands on our roof?" These are the dumb things I think about. Lands on our roof, house is gone. And my next thought was, I need to take my computer. Like, like I, I need to gra- need to be sure that I have it because there's a lot of stuff on there. But then I was like, "Well, I have Apple Care." So I should be okay. Right? Like Because I'm trying to view my life through my stuff. It'll get replaced. Okay, I'm good. I think I'm well insured. All the things you start to think about when you wonder if you're going to lose your possessions. And again, you might hear it in James or you might hear it in Jesus, but what's coming with that perspective is not life even though it might feel like it is now. So trust the Lord and don't love things. And His grace is sufficient for that. In a world where people want to accumulate, and we ask, we, we like to talk about our vacations and our places and our things and our toys, we talk about all those things, we show them off, His grace is sufficient to remind us that is not where life is. Even when the world is, and sometimes even voices in the church are screaming at us to love things. And often in the pursuit of things, what do you do but you abuse people? And it's not the perspective of our Lord. He has given us and shown us the way, and he gives us grace to endure, which we'll read more about next week.